Hi, I'm Chris Sarandon. Welcome to Cooking by Heart, where we revisit the vivid memories of the food we grew up with and the stories and the people attached to that time in our lives. Today, I'm coming to you from the Sacred Heart University Community Theater in Fairfield, Connecticut, and my guest today is Tom Holland, the director, producer, writer, and actor, Tom Holland. Holland began his career as an actor and then moved on to screenwriting with the acclaimed film Cloak and Dagger and the hit movie Psycho 2. Then he wrote and directed the cult vampire classic film Fright Night. He also co-wrote and directed the first entry in the long-running Child's Play franchise. He also directed adaptations of the Stephen King works, The Langoliers and Thinner. He's a two-time Saturn Award recipient, and he's also co-written the wonderful children's book, How to Scare a Monster, which, by the way, my grandchildren love. I've worked with Tom three times, and now I'm welcoming Tom Holland to Cooking by Heart. Hi, Tom. Hi, Chris. How lovely to see you, your shining face, and of course, uh, those of us who are, those of the, our audience who is listening can't see you have a guest to your side. <laughs> you have a, a uh, rather uh, horrific uh, head model uh, from Fright Night, but we'll talk about that later. Right now, I want to talk about your beginnings, the beginnings of Tom Holland. Uh, one of the things I always do when I'm doing a podcast is I, I, I like to talk about initially, I like to talk about provenance, about where we come from. And you come from a number of different places. You want to describe your kind of from birth to, uh, you know, your, your younger years? Well, I, I was born in Vassar Hospital in Poughkeepsie, New York. Yep. Uh, when my, I, I was a World War II baby. Uh, my father went over to North Italy to fight. And I was born while he was there. And then when he came back and, and got discharged, we moved to Burbank, California. Mm-hmm. I went to kindergarten in Burbank, which in those days, I'm talking late 40s, was all uh, aerospace. And all what prompted what prompted the move to Burbank? Uh, I that was, you know, I don't know, but it, but it, that was when everybody was coming to California as they got oh. out of the service. Right, right. The sort of ma- the mass exodus to the west. Yes, and Burbank had aerospace work. It had ah, jobs, you know, and right. bowling and, you know, things like that. And then we, my father, I guess in 1952 or three, moved back to Austin, New York, and opened a, a men's store, which they called the haberdashery in those days. Yeah, yeah, but retail. Retail. But yeah, Austin, yeah. Austin, in New York, is uh, is uh, where Sing Sing Prison is. It's on the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. And so I was there from the third grade to my sophomore year. But I was, and a, uh, a pleasant little town, yes. Aside uh, from the fact that there's a federal prison there, not Austin. No, Austin was sort of the the poor part of Westchester County. Ah. I got sent up every weekend to my to my grandfather's in Highland, New York, which is across the Hudson Bridge mm-hmm. in Gypsy. And in a lot of ways, I grew up in Highland, New York. 
uh, spending time with my with my grandfather. What did your grandfather do? <laughs> he owned. He was a barber, and when he retired, he converted the barber store to a uh, to a corner newspaper store with sporting goods and, and various things. Mm-hmm. There was various staples that were needed. I understand. I understand that your your grandfather was a barber for a long time, but then was kind of driven out of business by a, a, an invention. Oh well, yeah. What happened was in World War One, they invented the straight razor. They invented the safety razor, and they gave it to all the GIs. And uh, in World War One, and when yeah. they came when they came back, they didn't have to go into the barber every day to get a shave. Yeah, and that the business of barbers before the safety razor was a straight edge razor to to just to, to shave, you know. When, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those classic those classic scenes of the uh, of the customer in the chair, uh, laid back, reclining with the steaming towels on his face, and then the towels are sort of whipped off. I mean, it was a wonderful kind of ritual. Well, very yeah. relaxing too. Yeah, My gr- and I remember. I remember growing up in West Virginia, and next to my dad's restaurant, there was a barber shop that was subterranean. It was down below the street, and there was the barber pole, the revolving barber pole there. Right, right, same thing. Yeah, same thing. The uh, the and I, my grandfather used a straight razor and a strap, uh, and 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 shaved himself every day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I remember literally standing there when I was a kid. My brother sold newspapers on the street and I was the one who had to do the, the, the hawking of the papers. He was he was too refined to shout out. So I had to stand there and go, Raleigh Register, Raleigh, except I said, Raleigh Register, Raleigh uh-huh. Register. And then he would take the money and I never made a cent, of course. He was better exactly. than I. But uh, w- let's leave labor and justice for a moment and <laughs> get back to to uh, Westchester, New York. And tell me a little bit about um, the, because um, this is a f- ostensibly a show about food. Uh, what was your life like at home? Uh, what, would, what did your mom do? My mother worked with my father. Ah. It was, it was literally a mom and pop. And right. they, they worked six days a week. The only day they had off was Sunday. And on Sundays, my father would go back down to the store and restock the shelves. Mm-hmm. So it was a seven-day-a-week thing. Seven-day-a-week thing. And then my, then my father, at some point, realized that, uh, that uh, there was more money in women's wear, a higher markup. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they they converted from from selling men's clothes to women's clothes. Ah. My mo- then my mother became the buyer because she ah. had, she had the taste. So it really became a, a a family operation. So she really didn't have much time to cook at home. No, I mean no. She was she was never what I would call a good cook. Yeah. No, she didn't. She didn't have time. I mean, she would make a, a few basic meals like. Uh, Tomato soup and a toasted cheese sandwich. Oh, yeah. Lovely. I love that. Yeah. And she do chili with uh, stewed tomatoes. And mm-hmm. I've never had chili like my mother made. Things were really tough until the beginning of World War II. 
This yep. is what I heard. This is what I heard. Uh, yep. since I well, it's, a, it's the residual, the residual of the depression. Essentially, the, the, the depression was ended by the first, uh, the Second World War. Yes, exactly. I grew up in what was a burgeoning economy. And right. We both. So did I. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a boomer, and neither are you. I think we're called the silent generation. Yeah, we're the pre-boomers or the silent generation. Yeah, that's that's right. And, 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 and in my case, I know I was born because my father didn't know if he was coming back. Ah, now your father, your was it affected at all? You mentioned to me once that your father had a problem when he came back that he had he had contracted something in North Africa. Yeah, they they they, they he got what they called in those days trench mouth. Mm-hmm. It's really periodontal disease. Right. At 26 years old, they pulled all of his teeth and they did it in three days. And that's went into, yeah, he went into unimaginable. Shock, went into shock. And well, I, I don't even know if they had Novocaine in those days. Mm-hmm. He went into shock and was in the hospital and almost died. And they shipped him back to Philadelphia. Oh, wow. He served out the rest of his service back in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. So then, so this obviously would have affected what you guys ate, I would think. Yeah, I, yeah, it was, yeah. He complained about it all of his life. He he loved apples and he couldn't eat them anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't have didn't have the teeth to bite down on them. Right. And, yeah. Were there any were there any other um, residual? Foods that were kind of left over from the depression that you guys had at your house. I know we did at ours. Yeah, the the the, the way my mother had been brought up to cook and to feed the family was based on scarcity. This was a time. This was even in the early mid fifties. This was a time when women still couldn't buy nylons. Mm-hmm. Nylons that you know we couldn't get rubber for tires. Right. You know, and there there was. I remember when I was a little boy. They still had gas rations. Looks like maybe we're going back to that. But I mean, <laughs> you couldn't buy gas. You can yeah. buy well, you can buy it now. It's just it's just a hell of a lot more expensive. Yeah, but in those days, they gave you they gave you coupons to look right. at how much you could buy. Right. Uh, and so we, I remember growing up with my mother saying, "Finish your dinner. Uh, think of all those starving children in China." I can't tell you how many people that I've talked to in these podcasts who were brought up with the same phrase as I was. You yeah. got to clean your plate because there are starving children in China, which was probably true, by the way. Yeah. But there were also starving children in the United States as well, particularly during the Depression. Well, the, the, the I heard the stories about that the, from, my, from my mother and my my mother and her brother, my uncle. Mm-hmm. If you'd know my grandfather, my grandfather had a huge vegetable patch out in back of the house. Mm-hmm. As it, as did a lot of people, Victory Gardens. Yeah, Victory Gardens, and he grew, he grew tomatoes, he grew peas, he grew string beans, and he grew lettuce. And my grandmother would take and can everything. What they yep. called canning in those days. Yeah, yeah. She she put it. My memory is she put it in clear uh, glass jars and then used paraffin on top of it to preserve ah, them to and, seal it. And, 
and walking down into the basement, uh, both sides of the stairway were lined with shelves for all the preserves. So you could you could you could go from the kitchen, take a step or two down the uh, stairway to the basement, yep. and pick up what you needed for for dinner. Yeah. He, he, he they also kept uh, bags, uh, burlap bags of potatoes. And I grew up being sent into the basement to spud the potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's very, very common. And one of the things that I've, I've, I've relearned uh, as I've become a gardener, because I, I have a big gardener behind my house, uh, is uh, potatoes will thrive for a fairly long period of time in your basement if they're covered and they don't, they're not exposed to light and it's cool. Yeah. Relatively cool, and and uh, most people had uh, uh, cellars where they could keep things relatively cool, like potatoes, and they could buy them in bulk, which was much cheaper. Yeah. Um, well, well, so, I mean, I grew up with stories of hobos. We we lived by we lived near the uh, railroad tracks. My my mother and and her brother went down. This is during the depression. Went down yeah. to the railroad tracks to pick up the coal that fell off the coal cars. And that's yep. how they heated the house. Mm-hmm. And when I was small, I would also go down into, the, I'd be sent down to the basement and I would shovel the coal into the furnace. Oh, so it was direct coal furnace that you guys had. And then, and then when they got some money, when my grandfather got some money, he got a conveyor belt that, that conveyed the coal from the bin into the, into the, into the furnace. Luxurious, luxurious, and I would, <laughs> I would, I would take the, I would take the cinders out of the out of the furnace, and I'd carry them up, and I'd spread them over the uh, over the driveway when there was snow and ice. Right. Because I mean, I, I still do that with the with the cinders <laughs> from my with the cinders from my fireplace, not from the coal, but from the cinders from my fireplace. I, I use them all the time for for ice and snow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so so one of the things I was uh, that we did talk about at, at one point that I remembered from growing up in West Virginia was Scrapple. Yes. Can you describe what was Scrapple was in your house? Scrapple in our house was any any leftovers, usually some kind of meat, if I remember. But she also threw vegetables in. Mm-hmm. And there would be a grinder that she would take and attach to the to the counter, to the, yep. you know, that, that, that would screw. You used screw the yep. counter, yep. and then you you put everything, all the leftovers in the top, and you yep. grind it and yep. come out. And out came that conglomeration of, be it leftovers. Um, uh, any kind of uh, yeah, any kind of food matter that you had left over, mixed with meat, mixed with whatever, and then you you fry it. Yeah, that's right. But she made she made patties of it, yep. almost like pancakes, and then she yep. would fry it. And that's what we probably had every third night for dinner. Mm-hmm. Did you guys ever have spam? Yes. Yeah, but yeah, but, uh, correct me. Did you buy that in a can? In a can. That's right. And then you you'd use a key to mm-hmm. to, to wind and to open it. And yep. yes, we had spam all the time. How did you remember yep. that? Oh, because I've had 
conversations with other people on these on this podcast about growing up with spam. Absolutely. And and also that my my brother who was a I'll shorten this story because I've told it before, but my brother who was a gourmet cook rediscovered spam when he was in his 40s and started doing sort of gourmet varieties variations uh, with spam. He loved it. He loved it. He would have it fried in the morning with his breakfast. Uh, and he was a, you know, he was a very, very uh, innovative and experimental cook who cooked a lot of different uh, ethnicities of cuisine. Um, and he had 400 cookbooks, my brother. Uh, wow. So, yeah. But he, he, he uh, revisited Spam and just loved it. So, so. Chris, I so, will say one thing. Because yeah. if you have younger listeners listening, I never felt poor. No. You know, I mean, I mean, listening to this now, if you're younger, you think, oh, my goodness, you know, but, but they I had to grind up their leftovers and, and make a burger out of it and eat it again. Yeah. I mean, I, I had yeah. no sense of deprivation. And well, that's because you you were you were certainly not in the street. You weren't oh. a uh, yeah. You weren't a ragamuffin having to beg for food, as some people were during the Depression. We were we were lucky in that regard because our parents worked. Yeah, I I remember thinking we being I remember being told by my mother we were lucky because yeah. when she was she described when she was a girl and hobos would come knocking on the back door all the time and my mm-hmm. grandmother would give them whatever food they had. Yeah. Yeah. My my dad t- told me an interesting story about my dad owned a restaurant and uh, during the Depression, he carried a lot of the the um, the people who worked in the county seat. Uh, the, my hometown was the county seat in West Virginia, in Beckley, West Virginia. And a lot of the lawyers and even doctors, uh, professional people uh, were strapped for money because nobody was obviously hiring a lawyer. Nobody had the money to. And uh, he carried a number of these people through the Depression by giving them credit in the restaurant. They could come in, they could eat for free, they kept a tab, uh, and even sometimes he ignored the tab. I mean, he didn't even ask them to sign anything. And then uh, when the war was over, my dad said, it's interesting because it's, uh, you pay it back. It gets paid back karmically, and that he was remembered by all these people, and they remained steady customers for the rest of the time that he owned the restaurant. Well, that was that that was sort of like that with my father when he had the men's store, because they invented they invented layaway plan. Layaway, right, right. And this this was before credit cards. You just spurred a memory of mine. Which was that I, when I was a teenager, I saw a pair of golf shoes in the window of a store in town, right? They had cleats, and uh, I had to have those shoes. I didn't play golf. So I was determined I was going to fix those shoes so that they were street shoes. They were saddle shoes. You know what a saddle shoe is? It's a two-ton shoe, right? And uh, look it up, folks, if those of you who, who don't remember what a saddle shoe looks like. And uh, I put them on layaway. I would go in every week. I was in a band, and I made money both in my father's restaurant and um, in my rock and roll band. And I would go in, and I would put down another $5 if I had a gig that I made the money on or if my dad gave me some money from working in the restaurant. Uh, and I bought those shoes, and they were the, the proudest 
possession I own because I paid for them. Brown and white? Brown, brown and tan. Brown and tan. Okay. Yeah. Brown and tan saddle shoes. Well, thank, thank you for, for having me relive that <laughs> memory. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll go one more. Yeah, go, my go. Gran- my grandfather, this is in Highland, New York, which is mid-state New York. Yeah. Austin, Austin in New York, is, was Westchester County is more like a bedroom community to New York City. Right. You, when you got up to Highland, New York at the time, you were in the country. And my grandfather went out and hunted. And he got he hunted for deer, and you're not going to believe this rabbit. And when rabbits weren't pleasant, weren't 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 available, he would he would shoot squirrels, and we would have mm-hmm. squirrel stew. Mm-hmm. I remember him skidding squirrels and eating squirrel stew stew, which he insisted was a more tender form of rabbit. And do you remember what it tasted like? Yeah, it was good. My memory. So- yeah, so it was was braised as as it was in a stew, so that tenderized the meat. Yeah, and it had a good flavor. Yes, it was very tender. And what I remember is just watching with amazement as he would skin the rabbit. Mm-hmm. But he never went past the fourth grade, mm-hmm. and his father was a fishmonger, which means that he sold fish in New Paltz, New York. Right. Now, now a big university town. Right. But I mean, he was a butcher before he became a before he became a barber. Ah. So he knew how to skin it. He knew how to skin a squirrel. I would go, I would go in with him <laughs> into the butcher shop next to the store in Highland, New York, and he would walk up to the slide of side of beef hanging off the off the, the hooks, and yep. he would point out exactly what he wanted. I mean, he he knew everything yeah. like that. Yeah, my dad did too, because he had to, you know, he butchered his own meat in the restaurant. So he did. They, oh yeah, they brought in sides of beef, and my dad would cut up everything, all the all the cuts. And he had a freezer. Uh, a big walk-in fridge, no freezer. Okay. But it was a restaurant. That meat went. You know, he had a side of beef at least a side one side of beef a week. In the restaurant, so you could keep it would keep for easily that long if longer. Well, I remember walking into the butcher shop with my grandfather and back into the freezer, and they were they were lined up. I mean, it wasn't like that big or that deep, but maybe five, six, seven of them mm-hmm. because he sold to the entire town. Right, right. Well, but but uh, beef will last for a while if it's if it's hung properly, and also if it's if it's near frozen but not frozen. Okay. Okay. So at any rate, uh, so when you go to visit your grandfather, you would take the train, the bus, what? I take I take the New York Central up from Austin in New York to Poughkeepsie. From the time you were how old? Oh, I was young. Seven, eight, nine, ten. And by yourself? Yes. In those, it's hard to imagine, but in those days, you were safe. I mean, we played after school by ourselves. Yep. We'd, we'd, all, we'd all be out in the neighborhood down in Austin, all, all playing with our, all playing outside without supervision. And then we'd all hear our mothers yelling for us to come in and have dinner. This is, this is a ubiquitous uh, description of exactly what so many kids grew up like back in the 40s and the 50s. Well, my, I my, did, too. 
Same here. My biggest, my biggest and proudest possession was having a, a bicycle. I remember sleighs and then riding the, the, the sleighs down hills. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, and my hometown was a, you know, West Virginia Appalachian town. So we were a hill town. Uh, my, my hometown is like 2,500 feet above sea level. And there were constant hills everywhere. We lived at the bottom of a hill uh, from the town, and the best sled riding in the in the world. The best. Well, in, in Highland, New York, we lived at the top of the hill, and at the bottom and, were the railroad tracks. Yeah. And did you did you ever? <laughs> why this memory came back? But did any of your friends or you ever have uh, do the tongue on the frozen pole trick? Where you tried to talk somebody into licking a, a pole in the wintertime and it, their tongue would stick on it and freeze? Well, we all knew when you're, you're describing a Christmas story, a movie. Well, that happened to us. That happened to me. Not me personally, but some friends of mine, yeah. I didn't know anyone was dumb enough to do it. <laughs> well, they were, believe me. At any rate, so then, so then there was another move, right? My father made a move to Southampton, Long Island. Mm -hmm. And he opened a woman's store on Main Street. And this was before Southampton became Southampton. What was the popular takeout for you guys? What, what, if you had your druthers, what would you order? Well, I'm not, all I remember is my mother's favorite takeout shop was run by a Hungarian woman who was mm. a terribly close friend, Jean somebody. And I don't really remember. I don't remember anybody in my family having an emphasis on food. Mm -hmm. there, was a, there was an emphasis on clothes. Yeah, yeah. They were dressing. too busy. Yep. Yeah, yep. I mean, but, but food, food was, a, uh, was what you had to eat to keep going to go to work. Right. And you, and you worked from the time you were... I worked oh. forever. I mean, from the time I grew up. When I was really small, I was the one who cleaned the house on Saturdays because mm -hmm. my mother would be down at the working in the store. In the store, I'd vacuum the house. Right. You know. So then, when you uh, then there was a your father made another move after Southampton, right? Well, what happened was he he bought store, sportswear to sell during the summer, and then when the summer was over, he'd go back to Austin, New York, where he couldn't sell. You couldn't sell sportswear Somewhere, right. in New York in the winter. Right. They started going down to Southampton during the winter. Right. And and they would put they'd put all the all the the, the clothes, all the stock in a U-Haul. And they'd put it on the back of the uh, of the of the of the station wagon and they'd mm -hmm. drive it down to Southampton. And we lived in the back of the stores. They lived in a on on a bed with a mattress, and I lived in a cot. And what about again takeout food? Yeah, at that point we were eating in restaurants. So then, when did life change from this kind of retail mercantile uh, life to a life in the arts? I was the odd one out. I I was lucky enough to have a drama teacher in uh, school who got me in as an apprentice at Bucks County Playhouse in Pennsylvania. So so you were were you you were active in theater in in high school? 
Yes. Yeah, I was. But it wasn't. I was in love with film, not theater. But theater was the only access. You know, certainly we didn't right. know anybody who was interested in film. The uh, And so I got a job apprenticing in a summer stock playhouse. And well, film film at that time was kind of a, a, a closed shop in the sense that it was Los Angeles, pretty much Hollywood. And it was the studios. And if you wanted to get into the film business or if you wanted to be a filmmaker, if you were interested in movies, then you, if you lived in on the East Coast, you were kind of out of luck. Well, you had to come here. Yeah, yeah. You had to come I'm to Los Angeles. Later right now. Yeah, yeah. So... What happened was I, I apprenticed at Bus County Playhouse, yep. and it was everybody's. I was I was a good-looking guy, excuse the vanity, and and everybody said you should be an actor, and it wasn't that I was interested in acting so much either. Yeah, I I was interested in the plays and the drama and putting the sets up at strike night and all of that. That was all interesting. It was summer of my 16th birthday, so I was getting yep. extremely interested in, in girls. Yeah, yeah. So I learned about about acting class from, from, from being an apprentice. And the next summer, which would be my 17th birthday, I started going in from Southampton on Saturdays, taking the, the, the Long Island Railroad into New York City, and studying at the Herbert Burgoff Studios on 22 mm -hmm. Bank Street. I still remember. Mm-hmm. Uda Hagen. Now, were you, still in, were you still in school? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was still in high school. Yeah. But I knew that I wanted to be in the business. I can't tell you that I was in love with being on Broadway, which, mm -hmm. which I think is probably different than you. The... Uh, the, I was, I, I just wanted to get into film, and there was no way in. There were no yep. film schools at that point. Yeah, right. Everybody that was going to was going to theater school because that was all that was available. Yeah, same with me. Carnegie, Carnegie Tech or Northwestern, and I chose Northwestern. I went there, and I went, and I went, and I found the film school at Northwestern, which was one little room with uh, a, a couple of 16-millimeter cameras and cold splicers. You had to put on white gloves and use, use mm -hmm. splice and use, use acetate to, to glue them together. Yeah. And I, right. went out, I went out with a 16-millimeter film and what they called short ends then, which were uh, uh, basically leftovers. Leftovers. And yeah. I made my I made my first film when I was so I would have been eight, 18. Mm -hmm. and and I, but I'd been in acting class that summer and then I had more acting classes at Northwestern. So then in my first summer after my freshman year, I was in New York and I got an agent, and you know the agent. His name was Star Kesseltine. He was my agent for a time as well. Yes, like a terrific guy. Yeah, great guy. He had uh, he, his his claim to fame at that time was he'd had Robert Redford, and he had had Redford through uh, through his first play, and it just popped out of my head. Barefoot in the park. Yes, barefoot in the park, and that's yeah. what started Redford's career. 
Yeah. And then, of course, he went to Hollywood and left Stark. But the anyway, Stark was sending me around as an actor, and I started to, to I learned about doing TV commercials to make money. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was doing TV commercials. And uh, acting or filming? Acting, but also I started working behind the camera. Well, what happened was I got a seven year contract to Warner Brothers for an acting job, for, to act. For yeah. acting. And uh, I, I tested with. Oh, God, I remember so much. Uh, the girl who ended up marrying Peter Sellers, who was very, very beautiful. Which one? <laughs> one of the early ones. It wasn't the yeah, yeah. one. But the, uh, you know, I, I should talk. But... I, got, <laughs> I, got signed by, I got signed personally by Jack Warner at Warner Brothers. They brought me out to Warner Brothers. They gave me a seven-year contract. I was there for like nine months. And what I did is I, I went around and I started talking to all the post-production people, all the editing rooms. And mm-hmm. they were very, uh, uh, very open, the editors and the sound people. And they would let me watch and they, they taught me and, you know. And, oh, how great. Yeah. But this was at the point when, when the television business for the Hollywood studios was just dying. Right. During these years, what had happened was after World War II, television came in, I think like 1948 or 49, the Dumont Network out of Jersey. Sure. And that swept the country. I remember when I was out here in Burbank as a small boy, somebody would have a TV and we would go over and they would put chairs in the living room. And we would all sit in these chairs looking at this little 13-inch black and white screen at right. the end of the room, just amazed that, you know, that you were able to see this in your, in your house. Yeah, that pictures, pictures would come out through the air and exist in your television. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that really damaged movie going. Up yeah. until that point, people were going to movies like two or three, four times a week. And yeah. that television really hurt their business. So what happened was the studio switched over to making TV series. Right. And they became TV studios along with. And during the time in, in the early 60s was when the television, was all the Western series were then going. And television series started to take a dip. I don't remember why. And yep. all, this, all the studios cut back on their seven-year their 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 their, their companies contracts year. yeah and yep. all of a sudden I, I was out of work and I went back to New York City and I I was working once again commercials before and in front in front of the camera and going out on acting jobs and I worked I mean you know it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't I mean I the people I met coming up Chris the people I started out with. I started out with Al Pacino. Yep. Okay. The first, the first, my first play was uh, New Dramatist Guild. Uh, Tiger wears an orange necktie. When I was the lead in it, and when I left to go under contract to Warner Brothers, Al became the lead. Mm-hmm. And until then, he'd been one of the players. 
Right. That, so that was, so that was, how that did was how did the write how did the writing start? The writing started. I've always wanted to write. Uh, I'd always been a prolific reader, and I mean I mean really prolific. I get out of high school and I'd stop at the library on the way home and either take a book or sit there and read. Yeah. So I read. I was a huge science fiction fan. And in the 50s was the golden age. I became a soap opera star in New York. I started to get offers to come out here and test. And I was coming out to test for TV series. And it finally, the the soap ended. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I came out here. I had done some some very good television shows. I did a Chrysler Theater in 1966, which was a very prestigious television yep. show. Yep. And that starred Anne Bancroft and Jack Ward. I got into mm-hmm. the actor's studio out here. Mm-hmm. And I know Sally Field was there as the star of uh, Flying Nun. And she was like my age or contemporary. Uh, but they had a playwrights division. And they had a lot of writers there, and they'd put up one-act plays. Mm-hmm. The actors from the studio would act in them. Ah. And that's what I did. And I would be directed by these writers, and I'd start thinking, no, no, you don't want to do that. You want to cross here. You want mm-hmm. to introduce a character this way. I'd already begun to think that way doing soap operas. I was thinking that the directors weren't, really calling it right for the scenes right uh you know the uh so were you writing at the time i have been writing on and off but i should say i've been trying to write right everything i wrote was not any good and i threw it away yeah and i i was meeting people like jim bridges uh oh god i can't remember carol eastman uh anyway a lot of very successful screenwriters who were using their their scripts to leverage themselves into directing. Right. This was a this was at a moment when Hollywood had lost its way. Hollywood didn't have a pulse of the new generation coming up, which was of course that humongous boomer generation. Right. And for a, at a certain point, all the doors were open for younger people, which was us at that at that moment in time. Right. So, and I wanted to direct. That I'd already, I'd already been directing television commercials. I was doing the, the cheap commercials for like Mattel toys, uh, but everybody around me who was doing them, they all wanted to direct television or movies, but they couldn't get out of directing TV commercials. Yeah. And, and the only people that I saw doing that were writers who wrote successful screenplays. So I started writing screenplays. And unlike trying to write novels, which I've been doing previous to that, because I kept trying to be Arthur C. Clarke or whoever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could write screenplays because without knowing it, over all the, at that point, all the year, I've been working since I was 15, 16. At that point, I had a, a, a very good background in acting. And and, and 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 scene study, directing, and I had a, a hell of a background in film actually at that point too. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Bolts. Right. And so I started writing screenplays, 
And then. But were you selling? Were you selling screenplays? No, I starved for five entire years. I, I quit acting. I quit acting as a as a as a vocation. I still did it for money. Right. But I, I wasn't pursuing it like I wanted to be a an actor forever and ever. Yep. I wanted to be a, a writer director. Right. Is this when you went to law school? Uh, actually, yes. I, I had gone back to when I was acting. I had gone back to UCLA in 1968 because I went because I'm a nice middle class boy. Yeah, yeah. I've been beaten into my head by my parents. Not you got to have a profession. Yes, you had you had to have a backup profession if you were going to be an actor. Yep, not a bad idea. And then I looked around and I didn't know what the hell to do. And I thought it was insane to say that I was an aspiring scriptwriter. And don't ask me why. The only thing I could think of that, that I could do was be a lawyer because it's about talking and writing. Yeah, yeah. I applied to UCLA Law School, took the LSAT, and they made a terrible mistake, and I got in. <laughs> right. And I realized I had made a horrendous mistake. My eyes were crossing with boredom. Yep. But at that point, the first year of law school is the hardest. Yep. And it was a lot easier to say to people, I'm in law school, than it was to say, I'm an aspiring screenwriter. So you finished. So I finished. But I finished, I, I started to write. I didn't go. I started yep. to write. And I had a I had a very good friend who took copious notes. And I went through and went in and took the test based on his notes. And I graduated that way. And then I, 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 I studied my butt off for the, for the bar and I passed the bar. But... Just as I passed the bar, which was in 1974, I sold my first script. Aha. Aha. So fate, fate had other, uh, other plans for you. Yes. And so, I have, so what? I have, I have the check hanging on my walls. <laughs> Good for right. you. Good for you. So, so that was the first script. Then what was the second one? Well, I finally got a break. In 1977, with a big TV movie called Initiation of Sarah, and that was a that created a a mini scandal in Hollywood, and it was on the front page of the LA Times calendar section on Sunday, because we took the lead actress and it made her career, and her name's out of my head right now, and we threw her in a in a fountain, in a college fountain, and she came out of it wearing a wet T-shirt. Ah. ah, and that everybody was outraged and yep. pickled and everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that started to get me work. So how did Psycho 2 happen? I went an entire year without working. And then an Australian director named Richard Franklin, very talented and no longer with us, read one of my spec scripts and loved it. And he had me in, and he was directing a movie called Psycho 2. And nobody in town wanted to touch that writing job because it was it was apostasy to even think yeah. about doing a sequel to, to Psycho. Right, right. It was bound to be a, uh, a creative train wreck and even a career killer. Yep. 
but there was a young aspiring screenwriter who was desperate <laughs> for a job. Yep. And his name was Watt. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Psycho 2. And since I knew that it was a recipe for disaster, and it was a cable movie when I took the job. C cable was just coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the only way to elevate it, Richard and I were the only ones who real at Universal who realized that, that the sequel to Psycho had theatrical potential. But in order to get it, in order to get it fulfilled, I had we I had to get Tony Perkins to agree to play Norman Bates. Right. And in order in order to do that, I had to write a script that was actors baked. It would present a character and a character arc and an acting challenge that would that would that would that would titillate somebody as talented as as as, as Tony. Tony. Yep. And you know him better than I do. And I've always yep. wanted to hear your stories. But lo and behold, Tony said yes. And then Universal put out a press release saying Tony Perkins is going to come back and play Norman Bates from Psycho. And the entire world went mad. Yep. And, and Universal said, oh my goodness, we have a theatrical feature here. They didn't give us any more money. I mean, we did that movie for like, I think that, I think it was, it was 5 million something we did that movie for. And we wow. shot it like we shot it like Hitchcock shot the first one, which is to say every scene was on the back lot except for the shot in the cemetery. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we stayed in the back lot. We, I, I remember going with, I think it was Tony Boyle, production designer, and pulling the, the architectural drawings from the initial psycho house out of, uh, out of uh, the production offices where they, where they kept them. And we... we, we we built the psycho house again. We built the motel down at the bottom, and we built it for all those shots up over the yep. over the over over Tony and over the motel in the house. And nobody was really paying any attention to us. And then it was released in the summer of 1982, and it was the second biggest grossing summer movie after the first sequel to Star Wars. Mm. That ignited my career. Right, right. And from then on, it was relatively smooth sailing. Cloak and Dagger came next? Cloak and Dagger came next, yes. How did Fright Night come about? Well, at that point, I was super hot writer in Hollywood. And I wrote a, an original script called Scream for Help. And in just so many ways, our careers have touched. It went to a director that you know very well, Michael Winter. So there you are, very successful screenwriter. Well, after, after Screen for Help turned out to be almost unreleasable, and I'd always wanted to direct, and I said, well, I can't do any worse than that. So I insist, so I wrote Screen for Help. And I wrote Screen for Help because I, when I was doing Cloak and Dagger, Cloak and Dagger was originally a remake of The Window. Right. Rear, rear window or the window? The window. The oh. window was, was the juvenile version of rear window by the same writer. Ah, okay. Okay? But it had been done as a movie in 1948. It's the, it's the quintessential boy who cried wolf story. Right. It wasn't enough 
material to make it work. And I said, well, if you really want to have somebody, you really want to just have to do a movie about a kid looking out a window and see something, make him a mad horror fan and have him look out the window and see a vampire chomping down on the girl next door. And they Universal, they threw me out of the office. <laughs> they said, no, that will not do. That'll never make a movie. That's the silliest thing we ever heard of. Yes. This is also this is also several beats before horror really had established itself as a genre. Yeah. Had you'd had some great successes. You'd had you had you had John Carpenter do essentially, you know, he took uh, he took Psycho and commercial he took Psycho and commercialized it for the entire world with Halloween. I think Toby Toby Hooper had done uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which right. changed changed the entire business, as a matter of fact. But outside of it hadn't spread yet where it was a huge genre. Right. And also and also particularly vampire movies were being were being uh satirized and uh were being made fun of. They were uh, dead. Essentially. Yeah. Then, they were dead. Excuse the play play on words, but vampires were dead, dead, dead. What mm-hmm. had happened was when, when they go into farce on a genre, it means the genre yep. is exhausted and over. And that was Love at First Bite with George Hamilton. Right. And they had a huge disaster with, with, with Wise, uh, uh, great director of WISE, directing Dracula from the, from the musical with Frank Langella starring. And they put a lot of money into it. I think that was Universal too. And that died a horrible death. So nobody wanted to go near the vampire genre, but it was just so delicious to me on the concept of, 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 of the boy looking out the window. Right. I spec Fright Night. And then I put it out around town. And I remember one studio offered me $600,000 for it. Wow. And not, and not to direct. Not to direct, right. And not to direct. And I refused. And I got very lucky. I found some support at, uh, at Columbia, which was then extant. Uh, John Byers, an executive there. And everybody thought the script was really good. And they took me in to meet uh, the head of the studio, who was a gentleman called Guy McElwain. I don't know if you ever met him. I met him, of course. Yeah, I remember him well. Very suave, suave, gentlemanly kind of guy. Yeah, huge, huge agent before he, mm-hmm. before he yeah. joined the studio. And they had a slot on their schedule, the only one left, for a throwaway movie. You once said to me, Friday night is like capturing lightning in a bottle. And that's true. And you need, you need some real luck to make a yes. movie that, that, that lasts as long as Fright Night has. We're now, we're talking, we're, oh my gosh, 2022. But that's 37 years ago. Yep. And that movie still has a huge and growing fan base. People love that movie, Fright Night. Yep. And that was that, I had huge luck. I got you. I mean, you gave me a credibility that I, that I wouldn't have had otherwise because there was nobody else involved in that movie that had a reputation as an actor. Mm-hmm. Well, Roddy McDowell. Yes, and Roddy. 
Well, I, yeah. I, I cast Roddy because he'd been in another movie that I wrote called Class of 84, which mm-hmm. had also was an independent, but had been very successful. The, uh, but you were the prestige actor. You were Academy Award nominated. Everybody knew you were a brilliant talent. And I remember that I sweated trying to convince you to go and, 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 and play the part. And I can't imagine what you were thinking about playing a vampire at that point in your career. In, in the beginning, I, I was definitely not. But as soon as I read the script, I was intrigued. And after I met you, I was sold. Well, thank you. That's lovely. Yeah, definitely. This is, but I mean, this is where you need some luck. You know, I mean, this, this is, so I got you. But I also, Columbia Studios, the head of production was a man named Shel Schrager. And they, they had done Ghostbusters and had an enormous success. And so they wanted to keep the, 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 the effects team employed. So they'd be there to do the sequel, which they were then planning to do very, very soon. Right. And they gave me Richard Edlund and Steve Johnson and Randy, Randy Cook. The top people, the top people. The top people in Hollywood in my small little $9 million movie that nobody expected anything of. Yeah. And, and we, I, I went through, I cast that with, I was really specific and I really, really talk, read a lot of people. Yeah, you, and you cast it. You cast it beautifully, and the preparation was the right kind of preparation because you treated the whole thing as if it was that we took it very seriously. The stakes were all very high for all the characters, and your acting background made a big difference uh, in, in that, the way you that, prepared us. Yeah, that was that was where I used what I'd learned in Stella Adler's class. I mean, I got I got very I I. I the actor studio didn't help me except for the playwrights unit. Yeah, yeah. Stella really intellectually taught me a lot. And I took and I, 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 I applied that with, with the cast of Friday Night. But I had a group of cast people that also had done theater. Yes. I, I was, they weren't film actors per se. All of you liked to rehearse. Yep. And we were able to put that, that play, that movie on its feet. And when I watched that play, I, I I knew it could have been a play, could have been a three-act play. The damn thing. Remember that day we went and we did, we, we showed that whole, we did it scene by scene in one of the sound stages with all, we used tape, we taped off all the rooms. Yep. And it just flowed in a play. I did that with Langoliers too. Yeah, that's the way, that's the way Sidney Lumet uh, prepared movies. He rehearsed them, and he taped out the sets on the stage, and you rehearsed for, well, he rehearsed for weeks, but we rehearsed for, what, a week, I think? Oh, no, more like like four, more like a month. We rehearsed for that long? Well, you don't remember it now, but we started out in in that conference room. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we sat there, and we must have spent just a week talking about it. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's what I thought of as the rehearsal. But I want to just get into briefly um, Child's Play and how that happened, because, you know, we have the Chucky. In fact, I just did a documentary. I don't know if you've done it as well, uh, about the making of all the Chucky movies. Yes, I did. Yeah. And uh, tell me how that came about, because you are the originator of the franchise. Yeah. Well, the... I. 
I read the script and the script didn't work as well as I would like it to, but it had a great idea. Right. The, I, the idea was what what would happen if a, if a child's playthings came alive? Yes. And I that had a universal appeal because they thought all of us had thought of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that was also at a moment in time when the hottest toy out there was called My Buddy Doll. And My Buddy Doll was the first one that I remember where they put a computer chip in it so you didn't know what it was going to say when you laid it down or you set it mm-hmm. up. And yeah. the damn thing would say different things. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, so, I mean, I thought, well, that's brilliant. And I'd also seen that scene in Poltergeist, Toby Hooper directing, where the doll came out from under the, the bed and grabbed the little boy by the, by the, by the, by the ankle. Biggest mm-hmm. scream in the movie. And so I knew, I just knew that there was, that, that it was a hugely popular concept of a toy coming alive. Yeah, right. And, and that, a, universally, a universally held fear by any child uh, that when you talk to, you know, when you talk to them as grownups, we all, you know, at, at some point in our, our young lives, we, we thought of something becoming animated in the room beside us or in the bed beside us or, you know, when we woke up? Well, it gave me a grin. I mean, uh, the Fright Night concept had given me a grin. When I, when I was writing Fright Night, I was also chuckling halfway through, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and Child's Play struck me like that, but then I had all these people around me telling me that I could not do another horror movie. All these advisors, because otherwise I'd end up doing horror movies all my life. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you're successful at in Hollywood, that's all I think you can do. So I went and I did Fatal Beauty. I came out of that, and everybody and their brother had turned down had turned down the, the script, which was then called Blood Buddy. And all of a sudden, I thought of Charles Lee Ray. Don't ask me how, because I'd struggled for several months with with, with trying to rewrite it and hadn't been able to come up with a concept that would break it free. Yep. And when I, when I thought of Charles Lee Ray, I, it was like a flash went off of my head. And I went and I called up uh, the producer, uh, David Kirshner, and I said, I want I wanted to take another crack at it. And at that point, he was desperate because it had been turned down by everybody in town three or four times. So he said, great. And then I saw The Shining. And the shining was the huge explosion of study camp. Yep. Was with, with Kubrick following the little boy on the right. on the tricycle. So I knew that the that, that there was a the study camp that had reached the point where it was just absolutely terrific to put it on a little boy. And so I wrote I wrote Child's Play with 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 Charles Lee Ray, and I cast. Brad Dourif, who played the villain for me in uh, in, in in the Whoopi Goldberg movie yep. Beauty, and I designed that so that the doll chased everybody during you yep. know you know during the especially in the third act. Yeah, right. But but I mean I I cut the doll's moving point of view a lot, and that that you know visually that's what I'm for the fast. That's what's. That's what sells the fact that this is an animated creature that's uh, uh, dangerous and uh, to be reckoned with. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was. It makes it, it made the doll scary as hell. Yeah. Because it was, it was moving so fast, you know, I mean, like when he attacked you in the bedroom in the third act. Yeah, yeah. Use the baseball bat. Then he goes after, you know, everybody goes after Karen and Chucky. And, and Andy, rather. Andy. And I had to change the name because Blood Buddy and the Buddy, you know, my the Buddy doll, my Buddy, he couldn't use Buddy, so I changed Trademarked, it. Trademarked, yeah. Yeah, I changed it to Chucky. And that movie was, you were there. That was an extremely difficult movie to shoot. It was a, pardon the expression, son of a bitch. It was a tough one. Yeah. Cold, Chicago, winter, a lot of night shooting, uh, exteriors, as well as obviously interiors. But also you're having to deal with various iterations of the doll, um, little people, uh, 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 animatronics, uh, uh, children. I mean, mean, it was uh, it was a tough shoot. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Yeah, yeah. But. But it turned out to be a sensation. A total sensation. And when I, the minute we previewed that movie, even in the first preview, huge chunks of it. Whenever Chucky was on screen or Chucky was 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 threatening somebody, even yep. the, the audience was rooted to their seats. When that yep. knife came out of that car seat in between <laughs> their legs, the entire male audience oh, rose yes. up out of their seats. Levitated. Levitate, levitate. <laughs> well, that that turned into a huge. Uh... Yeah, you know, Tom, we could we could talk for, as I said, for hours and hours, and we will do that at some point. Well, but, but let's not forget one more that we did together that nobody knows about, called The Stranger Within. The Stranger Within, yeah, that's right. A, a TV movie with Rick Schroeder and uh, Kate Jackson. Kate Jackson, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But you have now, you've got something. Uh, that you're working on now. You want to tell us about it? Well, I'm working on a trilogy of Fright Night novels. I want to know. I want to know what happens after ah, basement that night. Aha. Uh-huh. Well, we're we're hopefully we'll all find out. Not only do I have the Fright Night trilogy, which I'm writing the novels, I right. also have Child's Play, a visual memoir. I have 140 production photos from the movie that we all did. And I oh. put that together with, with memories of, of the various people involved. Bill Butler, uh, you, uh, 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 Alex Vincent, everybody that I... And Catherine Hicks, yes. Catherine Hicks. And you, 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 you don't realize how involved that movie was until you look at the, at the photos. And you see, you see pictures of like... Of like fifteen doll heads on on, mm-hmm. on a rack, and you realize we had to change the doll every time for yes. a different expression for as far as it could go. And right. You, you you see Ed Gale doing some of the movements of the doll and selling that like coming out of the burning fireplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it just shows you what uh, how we all made it up as we went along to finally yep. make Chucky come alive. <laughs> so what's the what's the book called again? It's called Child's Play, a Visual Memoir. Ah, I can't wait to see it. But in the meantime, I want to return to a question that I ask everybody at the end of the of the podcast, which is, what is the strongest, most evocative food memory you have from your childhood? I already mentioned it, I think. 
comfort food, grilled cheese sandwich, and tomato yeah. soup, Campbell's tomato soup made with milk. Yes, My, I, same thing. After school. And if things are really going well, strips of bacon and mix them with it. Oh, my mouth is watering. I think I'm going to do that when I go home, right after this conversation. <laughs> Tom Holland, thank you so much. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Chris. Yeah. You've, been, you've been an absolutely terrific host and an and interviewer. And thank you for being like my favorite actor. Oh, well, thanks, Tom. I've worked more with you than I think that I have with any other individual actor. Probably, probably. It's because you're a pleasure to work with, and also, you're really talented. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. And thank you thank you for joining us on Cooking by Heart. Tom Holland. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Tom. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, everybody.